Thank you so much for coming all the way down from Edinburgh. Uh, I really do um, see you as a very special well friend, Mm -hmm. and each time you've been, you've just given us so many incredible truths that have lived and helped to transform our our lives. Kenny, just so that people can know, because I think there are some people who perhaps haven't heard you before, but um, what do you do in Edinburgh? Uh, I'm a a Church of Scotland minister there. I've been um, Church of Scotland minister for about 33, 34 years. And uh, for the last 10 years, I've been in Edinburgh in a what we would call a priority area, so an area of multiple sort of deprivation. Yeah, and and I... uh, I've never been as happy as a minister. It's great. Well, uh, I, I, I love you, it. You've just so, got the right kind of personality um, for that. That's amazing. And who lives in your household? Um, my wife and, uh, unfortunately, our two children still. <laughs> so now, you don't really mean get, that. I do mean it. I do mean it. But it's t- Father's t- Day tomorrow. They're 27 and 30. I'm oh, trying, right. I wish we could kick them out. So... <laughs> If, if anybody's looking to marry off their sons or daughters, just uh, come and see me afterwards. And, yeah. <laughs> well, you just never know. That is a word that's gone out. You yeah. just don't know where that's going. Uh-huh. So, excellent. And what do you do with your... Do you have any spare time? What do you do? I do. Um, I, I used to like playing golf, but uh, my, I've, I'll say a wee bit why I can't do that any longer. And um, so at the moment, it tends to be more things like... Uh, gentle strolls or reading books in coffee shops and that's what mm, I like doing. That yeah. sounds very good. Yeah. Well let me pray for you Kenny thank and you. then um, we can uh, yeah, hear what God wants to say to us. Father God thank you for Kenny, thank you for the gift of his time that he can spend with us and Father thank you that you've given him great gifts to teach and to preach from your word. Thank you for the way that he just opens up passages. And we pray now for a fresh anointing of your Holy Spirit. Father God, may you bless him beyond his imagination, but just fill him up to overflowing. And once again, Father, we ask for your healing in the very deepest parts of him and all over. So come, Holy Spirit, just strengthen him this day as he teaches your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Right, I'll get you the next Thank you. Well, just uh, while Anne's getting the, the lectern, it is, uh, it's very nice to be here. Um, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to read from John chapter 20. So John chapter 20. And um, a well-known uh, uh, passage, just Jesus after the resurrection, <clears throat> appearing to uh, Mary Magdalene. So John chapter 20. And we'll begin reading at verse 10. The disciples went back to their homes, but Mary, Mary Magdalene, stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, 
Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, or Rabboni, which means teacher, my teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Well, amen, and we thank God for his uh, word. I I don't really like uh, preachers who come and uh, preach or teach at conferences and they uh, try and get some sort of audience participation. So I'm going to get my revenge on uh, all these preachers that have annoyed me. I want a wee bit of participation here. I want you just to turn to your neighbours in twos or threes and just talk amongst yourselves about what, what is our calling in the world? What does Jesus send us into the world to do? Just uh, don't shout out your answers because you're probably going to be wrong. But uh, turn and share what you think. What does Jesus call his people into the world to be and to do? Just turn and share with one another for a moment or two. Yes. That's fine. I'm okay. Have you got the... um... Okay, is, is that long enough? <clears throat> you, can, uh, you can hopefully uh, share further your ideas with uh, one another uh, later on. I, I'm just going to ask you a very simple question. How many of you said Jesus sends us into the world to baptize? Did anybody say that? See, I don't understand you English people. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't, don't you know your Bibles? I, I just don't understand this. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And uh, this is what Jesus himself actually says. So it's not a Scotsman making it up. Verse 18 of the last chapter of Matthew's gospel. Then Jesus came to them, to his disciples, and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Maybe some of you said that. But how many of you said this? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey everything I've commanded uh, you. I I find it interesting. I've actually asked that question just uh, a couple of times over the last two years in various settings, and nobody has ever said baptize. And yet there it is in the words of Jesus himself. And uh, I I just want to to think with you as we we start off thinking about the Father's love. What 
What does that actually mean, to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit? Well, the word baptize means immerse. That would please the Baptist people here. The word baptize actually does mean immerse. And uh, the name of, uh, in the Bible, names actually meant something. You know how nowadays we'll call, we'll call children after soap stars or whatever. But back in the Bible days, names actually meant something. They, they told you something about the person. They told you something about their character. They told you something about the person's uh, purpose in God. So, for example, Moses was called Moses because it, it sounds like drawn out, and he was drawn up and drawn out of the water. And Samuel was called Samuel because Hannah asked the Lord for him, and the Lord heard, and his name reflects that. Uh, my, my parents obviously were going in the biblical tradition because they called me uh, Kenneth, and Kenneth in Gaelic is Koinyach, which actually means handsome, so there you are. So there, <clears throat> but to, <clears throat> to baptize into the name of, let, let's just follow this through, it means to immerse into who somebody really is. So Jesus is saying, go into the world and immerse the world into a real experience of who God really is, as Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit. So immerse them in the Father, immerse them in the Son, immerse them in the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus actually sends us into the world to do. And I guess the, the plain fact of the matter is we we, we, we can't really go into the world and immerse people in who God is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit if we're not immersed into the reality of these things ourselves. And so today we're really just going to think about what does it mean to be immersed into the, the Father? What does it mean uh, to, to, to live there? What does it mean to abide there? And uh, that's what I want to, to think of uh, with you today. I wonder if you've ever uh, thought of this question, where did, where did Jesus himself actually live? Do you remember after Jesus was baptized that two of John the Baptist's disciples, Andrew, were told as one, and another that were not told, were not told his name. They actually say to Jesus, Rabbi or Master, where do you live? Jesus just said, come and see. And somehow after they came and they saw where Jesus lived, they actually said to others, we, we found the Christ. We found the Messiah. Where do you live? Come and see. You know, John's gospel is full of symbolism. and Sometimes you have to go a wee bit deeper than uh, the surface meaning of the text. I remember hearing a prosperity preacher from America talking about where Jesus lived. And he actually somehow managed to get Jesus as possessing his own house in Capernaum, running a business, and being extremely wealthy. But I think behind this question, Master, where do you live? Come and see. There's something deeper going on. They saw in a deeper sense where Jesus lived. 
They saw that he lived in an intimacy with the Father. They saw that he lived in a, a closeness with the Father. And it took some of the other disciples time to realize the fullness of this. They came to realize it in different ways, in different stages, at different times. Immediately after, Andrew and this other unnamed disciple see where Jesus lives and realize this is someone in close contact with God. In fact, this is the Son of God. We, we read that the next to realize that was Nathaniel. Because remember, Jesus saw him and he, he said, here's a true Israelite in whom there's no guile. And and Nathaniel realizes from that, this is somebody in intimate relationship with the Father. And he cries out, you're the Son of God. It took Philip a bit longer. Do you remember on the very eve of the cross, as it were, that Philip actually says, Lord, if if you would just show us the Father. That's the longing in the human heart. To know the Father heart of God and and Jesus had been living with Philip and performing miracles and doing mighty signs and yet Philip just says, Jesus, if you could just show us the Father, we'd be satisfied. There's almost a frustration, isn't there, in Jesus as he says, Philip, have I been with you so long? Do you not realize that I'm I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What about Simon Peter? Do you remember at Caesarea Philippi that that Jesus asked, who do men say that I am? And, And Simon Peter says, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, or or one of the prophets come back from the dead. And then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. So at various times and in various ways, they began to see where Jesus really lived. That he did abide in the Father. And that's really the word that's used in that question in John 1 verse 35. Master, where do you live? Where do you abide Where do you reside permanently? And later on in the gospel, Jesus tells us, this is where I abide. I abide in the Father. And the amazing thing is that what Jesus actually offers to you and to me and to everybody who puts their trust in him, is he actually wants to invite us into his home. He wants to invite us into the very place that he lives. The question at the beginning of John's gospel, Lord, where do you abide, Master? Where do you abide? Do you remember the reading that we started with in John chapter 20 with Mary Magdalene? Mary Magdalene wants to hold on to Jesus. You can understand that because he delivered her and he taught her how to live in that new freedom that he'd given her. But Jesus actually says, Mary, don't hold on to me because I've not yet ascended to the Father. But go and tell my brothers, go and tell the disciples, I'm ascending to my God and their God, to my Father and 
your father. But the whole purpose of Jesus coming was to come into where we live in order to take our sin and our shame and our sorrow upon himself and to take it to the cross and be done with it. But he doesn't just want to save us from. He wants to save us into. And he wants to bring us into where he abides, where he lives. At the very start of John's Gospel, there's an amazing phrase about Jesus, that famous opening 18 verses that we call the prologue that we read round about Christmas time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And do you remember how that 18 verses ended? It, it ends by telling us this, that nobody has seen God, but the only Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. Do you know what that word bosom actually means? It actually means womb. It's a difficult concept, isn't it? That Jesus somehow came from the womb of the Father. He came from that place where he was delighted in, where he was wanted, where he was treasured. He came from the innermost place of God himself. He is the innermost revelation of God. And that's where he comes to take us, into the safety and the protection and the security of the womb of God where he lived from all eternity. You know, Jesus never, ever changed house. He lived for all eternity in the delight of his Father, in the very womb of the Father, wanted, treasured, loved. And when he came to earth, there may have been a change of location, but there wasn't a change of an abiding place. He still lived in the Father's delight. This is my son, you are my son, whom I love, and you bring me great joy. And I suppose the question I want to ask in this first talk is, is simply this, are, are you living truly, fully in that place of your belovedness? Do you realize that the Father loves you every bit as much as he loves Jesus Christ? I think the first time I came here uh, to the, the well, I, I spoke on the theme of the Father Heart of God, and I, I don't want to repeat anything or everything that I said there, but I, I wonder if you do remember what I said on that occasion if you were there. If, if the, the wonderful thing about being a Christian is that we are in Christ. And if we are in Christ, then the Father says over you or over me exactly what he says over Jesus. And so I suppose what I'm asking you this morning is, are you there? Are you in that place of actually believing that the Father says over you right now, you're my son, you're my daughter whom I love, and you bring me great delight, you bring me great joy? Or I wonder if secretly do some of us think we're a bit of an also-ran, we, we, we're not as favored as some of the children of God, uh, and actually we carry around a feeling of being a, a bit of a disappointment to God, if we're honest. 
Friends, if we're in the Father, remember what I'm saying. If we're in Jesus, if we're in Christ, remember what I've just said. The Father says over you what he says over Jesus. There's Jesus who now abides where he's always abided, in the Father's love, seated in the place of of favor and delight and honor at his right-hand side. In all eternity... Do you think the Father is ever going to turn to Jesus at his right-hand side and say, Jesus, I've never told you this before, but I have to tell you, you're actually a bit of a disappointment to me. It's never going to happen. And if he doesn't say it over Jesus, do you know what? He doesn't say it over any of you. And he doesn't say it over me. For the first 20 years of my Christian life, I actually believed I was saved, but I actually believed I was a disappointment to God. It took 20 years for the assurance of the love of God to actually get from head to heart. Do you think that the Father is ever going to turn to Jesus and say, not only are you a bit of a disappointment, but... You know what, I've always wished that you were more like Peter or you were more like Andrew or you were more like James or you were more like John. Do you feel second best or second favorite? If we're in Christ, there's nobody beyond us in terms of who the Father loves and who he delights in. So I'm asking you really to face up with honesty to to where are we really. It it just seems to me that often we, we sing or proclaim where we're not really living. And I suppose I want to begin in this first talk by encouraging you to be honest without fear. Am I living in the place of being beloved? Or am I not really there? You know, it's interesting how Jesus treasures honesty. I'm not sure. I've been down a few times. I'm not sure if I said this. I can't remember when I I first thought it. But that, that conversation that occurs in John chapter 20 between Jesus and Simon Peter, I find one of the most amazing chapters of the whole Bible. Because Peter had claimed to be somewhere that he wasn't. He'd said to Jesus, Lord, even if all these other disciples desert you, I will never, ever desert you. That's where he proclaimed he was, that he loved Jesus with a sacrificial love that would be willing to die for him. And yet events proved otherwise. And three times he was asked, Are you one of this man's disciples? You are one of this man's disciples, are you not? A servant girl saying to him, I'm sure you're one of his disciples. And he cursed and he turned the ear blue, denying Jesus. And there comes that moment in the beach. And Jesus isn't into shaming people. But he does want to deal in reality. 
And he goes for a walk in private along the beach with Simon Peter after the rest of the disciples and Peter and Jesus have, uh, have eaten breakfast together. And I, I wonder if you've noticed this. He doesn't call him Peter because he, he hasn't been a Peter. He hasn't been a rock. His calling is in jeopardy. God doesn't take back his calling. We can throw it away. And so Jesus deals in absolute honesty. He doesn't call him Peter. He calls him Simon. And he says to him, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me more than these? And he uses the word for sacrificial, all-consuming, laying down your life, dying for somebody type of love. And he says, Simon, Peter, you claim to love me like that. Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me the way that you claim to love me? And actually in the response, it's hidden in our English translations. There's a yes, no. Peter actually says yes, no, Lord, in answer to that question. And what I mean is he uses a different word for love. He uses the word for friendship, love. He realizes that in all honesty, he cannot say that he loves Jesus with that all-consuming, laying down my life type of love. And he says, yes, no, Lord, I, I do love you, but with a, with a friendship love, I can't claim any more than that. That's where I am. I was living in complete denial and dishonesty before when I claimed to be willing to lay down my life. So yes, no, Lord. I can't use the word you've just used and I once used, but I'm using this word. I, I want to be your friend. And Jesus says to him again, Simon, son of Jonas, I'm going to ask you again, you, you, you use this word, and so I'm using it. Do you love me with sacrificial, laying down your life type love? And Simon Peter says again, yes, no. I can't use that word, but yes. I do love you as a friend. Truth really hurts. And now Jesus comes to a truth that really hurts. Simon Peter, you've not even been a faithful friend. And he uses the word that Simon Peter uses now. And he says, Simon Peter, or Simon, doesn't use Peter, Simon. Do you even love me as a friend? And that really gets to Peter. It hurts because truth does hurt. And he realizes, I've not even loved Jesus as a friend. I've been a completely unfaithful friend. But yes, Lord, even though I've been an unfaithful friend, I, I can truly say this, and you know it's true. I do want to be your friend. I at least want to take one step up from being an unfaithful friend. I, I, I'm not going to use the word for sacrificial love. 
For as an unfaithful friend, I'm telling you, and you know it to be true, Jesus, I want to be a better friend. You know, sometimes as a preacher, and I've seen this in Wester Hills so clearly over the last 10 years, preachers are very keen on on a calling for a I surrender all type of giving of ourselves to Jesus. But so often that I surrender all can lead to a, a guilt and a rededication three months later and six months after that. Do you know the amazing thing about Jesus? He was prepared to begin again with Peter on that basis. You're an unfaithful friend. But I know you want to be a better friend. And I'm willing to begin again there. Jesus loves honesty. He can't bless an unreal person. An unreal person doesn't exist in his eyes. He deals with reality. Do you remember him with the the woman at the well in John chapter 4? Go and call your husband. I have no husband. You're right when you say you've no husband. You've had five husbands, and the person you're living with now is not your husband. This you've said truly. And on that basis of honesty, a fresh purpose is released into our life. So friends, in this first talk, I'm really encouraging you to to be totally honest before God. Do I really believe that I'm loved? We sang about the amazing grace of God, and this is the amazing grace of God, that in Christ the Father says over me what he says over Jesus, my beloved, the one who brings me great joy. Is that really where you're living? Or are there some things that you just need to open up today in the presence of God and allow him to touch and allow him to look at so that he can meet you where you really are and begin to take you truly into your belovedness? You know, it's interesting that the the Bible describes the the devil is a, a roaring lion who looks for someone to devour. And, and I discovered just through watching TV uh, 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 two or three weeks ago, I think it was a repeat program about, about bears in Alaska or something like that. And there's a, there's a great difference between bears and lions. In this program about bears, that there was a, an incident that was a, apparently quite a dangerous incident because that a bear thought that the TV crew had stolen its seal. And it sniffed about and its seal wasn't there. And it lifted up its eyes and saw the camera crew and started very deliberately and slowly but unstoppably coming towards the camera crew. 
And uh, the, the person who was an expert in bears said, you know, you'll have heard before that if a bear comes towards you, you, you have to try and make yourself as big as possible. And he said, that's, com- that's completely wrong. An aggressive bear will see that as aggression. He said, that try and make yourself as small as possible. So if a grizzly comes in here, I've got some hope. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about some of you. Men need to know these things. Have you ever realized that about men? I, I, I need to know how to meet a grizzly bear in Edinburgh for some reason. And I, and I stored up this information. Oh yeah, if I meet a grizzly bear, make yourself even smaller than you really are. And so they got down and they made themselves as small as possible. And the bear came within about 12 feet. And uh, the guide say, said, it's okay, I've I've got my hand in the pepper spray. And I thought, a pepper spray? <laughs> I, would, I would rather your hand was in a gun or something. A pepper spray. And, uh, but the bear sniffed around, looked and wandered off. And then the, the guide actually said, you see, we did the right thing. If I'd stood up like this, and right at the point that he stood up and demonstrated that, the bear turned around again. <laughs> And so they got down as small as possible and he wandered off and the incident was passed. You know, that bear, it literally looked as though it would have easily torn everybody to pieces. There's a difference between a bear and a lion. A a lion isolates. A, A lion seeks to separate off. That the enemy of our souls is a lion. He'll, he'll seek to isolate us. He'll isolate us from one another, but he'll also try and isolate us from the love of God so that we don't actually come into our belovedness. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of a, a speaker called uh, John Vanier, but um, he, he's a, a writer that I've really come to uh, appreciate an awful lot. Um, he, he's formed a worldwide sort of uh, community of communities that uh, deal with people with disability, physical and, and mental disability. And able-bodied and minded people live with them and they live in community together. And I find that he writes about humanness with a sensitivity that I've, I've rarely met in anybody else. He, he gives some reasons about why we can feel isolated from the love of God. Uh, let, let me just list a few of them for you. He says this, it might be difficult for me to believe he can set me free from, from all that seems to suck my, my life away or draw my life away, my, my ability to live life. I, I wonder if some of us just find it difficult to believe that, that I can actually live free from this feeling of being a failure and a disappointment. Is that a strong feeling by which the enemy seeks to isolate you from God? I, I just can't believe that this feeling of being a failure, a disappointment, that I, I should be more like other people, I, I just can't imagine myself free from that. Here's another reason. Perhaps we've been ensnared in a love that was possessive or controlling or limiting. 
maybe we've touched love before and, and it wounded us. And those who claim to love us, whether parents or spouses or brothers or sisters or friends, they, they, they actually in some sense damaged me. And I, I don't know if I want that intimacy with God. I wonder if that's the reason why some of us keep our distance from God and play into Satan's hands to keep us just that step removed, that step isolated from God. Here's another reason he gives. I, I've learned to keep my head above water. I, I'm surviving. I've got my survival tactics. I might not be living, but I'm surviving. And, and I'm not sure what would happen if I grew closer to God. What might he touch? What might he change? I'll just keep my head above water, even though it means surviving rather than living. We can be frightened of admitting the mess. I wonder if maybe your life is more of a spiritual mess than you would care to admit or face up to. So he gives various reasons as to, um, this is just sort of collapsed a wee bit, hang on. Oh, there we go. He gives various reasons. What, what keeps you isolated from God? The, the danger of a list is that you leave out something that might be relevant to you. He simply says this, each one of us has our own struggle to allow the healing love of Jesus to penetrate the darkness of our heart and liberate us. But I wonder if in the ministry time, in a few moments, I wonder, another writer that I like is somebody called Henry Nowen, and, and he says that the, the Christian life is really about this. It's about moving from having a clenched fist to having an open hand before God. All of us have things that we would rather people didn't see or know about or touch. And moving into our belovedness actually means I, I'm going to uncurl my hand. And I'm going to show to God what I would rather nobody saw. And I'm going to allow him to touch what I would rather nobody touched. What keeps you isolated? What keeps your relationship with God like this? Rather than, this is who I really am, Lord. And this is the me that needs your love. And this is the me that needs your touch. And I just wonder, even though we're here in a, a public meeting, I, I wonder if in some sense, you know how Jesus tells us, go into your own room and shut the door and pray to your Father who's in secret. 
I somehow believe that God wants to do that for each of us today. That we'll have a sense of being before the Father, almost as it were, totally alone and in private. And in that private place saying, Father, help me to uncurl my hand. And I allow you today to touch what actually I would rather nobody touched and to see what I would honestly rather nobody saw. I've mentioned Henry now and then I, I find him along with uh, John Vanier just um, so, so um, helpful. And uh, I don't know if this is going to work or not. We'll see. What do I need to do, Anne? It looks like green. There we go. Thanks. I, I've just been reading a book. I, I don't know if this is breaking copyright, showing you this or not, so pretend you've not seen it if it, if it does. But it's probably one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. And if you, if you can see it, it's an anniversary edition of of uh, Henry now, and it's called Walk with Jesus. And it's, uh, it's really about Jesus' journey to the cross. The, the stations of the cross, I guess we would call it, if we were Anglo-Catholic or, or Catholic or whatever. And, and Henry now traces that journey of Jesus just through a series of pictures painted by a, a Roman Catholic sister. And I think what really impressed me as I, I looked at these pictures and Jesus' journey to the cross and remember through the cross, through the empty tomb, back to the Father, was, was all the types of human experience that he was taking in his wake up to the Father's throne. And so, for example, Henry Nouwen speaks about Jesus before Pilate just testifying to truth and his background for speaking about that is a picture of a black man in prison in South Africa in the days of apartheid. I've spoken up for truth. And this is what's happened to me. And he moves on and he, he thinks about uh, Jesus having the cross laid upon him. And this is a picture of a man that he, he saw in Guatemala. And uh, the man was... Uh, carrying wood to make coffins for his, for his friends. And against the background of that picture, he, he talks about the vast numbers of people on the earth that have just had things laid upon them that are incredibly hard to carry and incredibly hard to live. So Jesus, on his way to the cross, he, he, he identifies with those who suffered for truth. He identifies with those who have had difficult things carried to, to carry uh, through life. Where am I heading here? Should that move? Yeah. It's a little boy from Vietnam. He, he's fallen and nobody's picking him up. 
And against the background of that, of Jesus falling on his way to the cross, he, he, he talks about children, he talks about the vulnerable, just the, those who long for someone to help them and pick them up. But nobody seems to bother. This is a woman from Nicaragua. She's lost her husband. She's lost her children. She doesn't know where they are. She's a lot to forgive. And he speaks about those who have borne so much in life and have so much to forgive. And Jesus, as he makes his way to the cross and on the cross, he he sweeps that experience into his arms and carries it to the cross and back to the Father. Here's a Brazilian man. He can't understand what has happened, how his farm that for generations has provided a living for his family, it, it doesn't do it anymore. And, and it, it's just too much. He's overstretched. Jesus carries that experience to the cross and back to the Father. This is an old lady from Kathmandu. She's got no possessions other than a blanket. Where's the husband who loved her in her youth? Where's the children who honored her? Where are the neighbors? who looked to her for wisdom and listened to her teaching. She's stripped completely naked, stripped of all dignity. And he imagines Jesus on the cross carrying the experience of being stripped naked and the indignities that can happen to human beings. On his way back to the Father, Jesus carried all of that. I wonder if you've been through an experience that maybe you can identify with one of these pictures. You, you tried to live for the right thing and you ended up being ostracized like the black man in apartheid South Africa. In your childhood or at vulnerable times in your life, you, you longed for somebody to help you and to pick you up and to cuddle you and to embrace you, to show you affection and care. But nobody did. Maybe something happened to your family. And it's incredibly hard to forgive the people who did it. Maybe something happened to you to strip you of dignity. And in the face of life as we experience it, it can be really, really difficult to believe. I'm the beloved of God. Do you remember Gideon when they were facing the Midianites and the angel comes to him and said, you know, hail mighty warrior, the Lord is with you. And to Gideon, it seems like a mockery. The Midianites are destroying us. 
So how can you say the Lord is with us? And so many people's experience of life has been utterly destructive. And to say you're the beloved of God can seem like mocking the story. Jesus never mocks your story. He knows what it is to be tortured for speaking the truth. He knows what it's like for to, to, to be in a place where nobody picks you up and comforts you. He knows what it's like to have a cross, hard things placed upon your back. He knows what it's like to be abused, stripped naked, humiliated, and robbed of all dignity. And he carried all of that to the cross. And he carried all of that back home to his father. So, clench fist to open hand. Maybe these pictures will help you as they've helped me just to say to Jesus, Lord, I find it really difficult even to allow you to touch this. Where were you when that was happening to me? Where were you when that was happening to my family, to my son, to my daughter? But why is a question that Jesus himself carried? And he carried it on the cross. And he cried it out to the Father. So clench fist to open hand. What do you need to allow Jesus maybe to touch this very day? Here's the final thing I want to say. It might not be life's experience or the way that life has treated you that makes it difficult to believe you're the beloved of God. It, it might just be because of what you yourself have done. I find it lovely that, that the person that Jesus speaks about, to, to, uh, about returning to the Father. Do you, do you know what I find really lovely? Our, our name was Mary Magdalene. We, we, we've almost surrounded that name with mystique and honor. Do you, do you know what that really meant? Magdala was the place where the Roman army was camped. Mary Magdalene really means, oh, there's Roman Camp Mary. That's where she plied her trade as a prostitute. 
Jesus appeared to Roman Camp Mary. That's what she would have been called. That's what she would have been shouted at in the street. Roman Camp Mary. And it was to her. He said, I'm going to the Father. Go and tell the disciples what I'm telling you. I'm going to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. So whether it's what you've done or what life has done, today I hope you'll unclench your fist and say, Lord, this is why I find it really hard to believe that you delight in me. This is why I find it hard to believe you say over me, you're my son, my daughter, whom I love. And you bring me great joy. Why don't we just gently shut our eyes and the the presence of God. And I've left time this first talk just to allow us to do what I've, I've just said. Why don't we, even though we're part of a gathering, just go into our room, shut the door, and just speak with our Father in secret. Just say to him, Father... I think this is why I stumble. I, I think this is why I find it difficult to, to get the love of God from my head to my heart. Because of the story that makes me wonder where you were. Because of what I've done that makes me Doubt you could love me. Why don't we just, in the secret place, alone with God, uncurl our fist and say, Lord, would you touch this? Would you heal this? Or it may be you don't know. I don't know why I find it so difficult. My life's not been that bad. And I believe I'm forgiven, so I don't know why I can't get the love of God in my heart. So, Father, speak to me and show me in the secret place. So I'll just be still and quiet and for a few minutes we'll just sit and metaphorically unclench our fist and allow the Father to speak into where we really are.
Just as we remain in the presence of God with eyes shut, there's a maybe one or two things I feel God wants me to say. I think he wants to say to somebody here, don't be embarrassed. Simple as that, don't be embarrassed. Don't be embarrassed to unclench your fist and let me look at this. Maybe the embarrassment goes back years. I, I don't know if this is for someone or just God helping me to unpack this a bit. Um, I'm remembering just as I stand here uh, an incident when I was about nine or ten when the the art um, teacher um, said, I, I, want, I want you to paint your living room in your house. And... Um, I was at a private fee-paying school and my, my parents were poor compared with the parents of every other boy in the class. I don't mean we didn't have enough, but it, it was really quite a wealthy collection of families, as it were. And um, my, my dad was a joiner and then a baker and um, they sacrificed everything to send me to that school. And it wasn't easy, a couple of periods of unemployment and so on. And I knew I was rich compared with these other boys because I was loved. And yet when we were asked to paint that room, there was this sudden embarrassment came over me. Because I knew that my living room was nothing as grand as the living rooms of my friends that I'd visited and so on. And so I indulged in a spot of fantasy. We're about to have the room redecorated. And I, I painted a picture of the way that in my fantasy I thought it was going to become. And I didn't paint reality because I was embarrassed. And I just wonder if there's one or two of us just struggling with that thing of embarrassment. Maybe it does come from your childhood and maybe looking back you can see it was ridiculous. And I can look back now and see it's ridiculous. But you know what? I understand it. I understand why I felt like that as a, a nine or ten year old. Even as I'm standing here, I... I understand why I felt like that and and I don't condemn myself for that fantasizing or that embarrassment. I believe God understands and that he would look upon that make-believe with compassion. But it was make-believe. Is there just something about your background that you found embarrassing? Isn't it so kind of God that he even cares about childhood embarrassments? And wants to pour in his peace and his love there. Maybe you couldn't ask people to your home. 
because you were embarrassed. Maybe not materially. Maybe there was mental instability in your parents or there was just something there that you didn't want others to discover. Maybe God wants to touch embarrassment today. Such a, an ordinary human experience. But it leaves its scars. And then I wonder, secondly, if God wants to help some of us believe that we can manage intimate relationships. And if we've had bad experience of intimate relationships before, it, it can be difficult to even think about myself being deeply loved and deeply treasured. It can feel very unsafe. Jesus taught Simon how to be a better friend. And he did become Peter, who actually did become a rock and was able to love with sacrificial, giving everything type of love. And he helped him in that journey from not being a very good friend. To becoming a lover of Jesus. And just as I think that God maybe wants to release some of us from embarrassment. I, I think he wants to release some of us from the lie. You, you've not got what it takes. of a close relationship with God or with anybody for that matter. He wants to take away a fear that you can't be an intimate friend. And he wants to help you not to live so safely. but to take the risk of trusting again and loving again and living again. Lord, whatever you've been speaking into the secret places, we've unclenched our fist and shown you an open hand. Help us not to quickly clench our fist again. But to be willing to stay in that place of openness and vulnerability. As the day progresses. And Jesus, by your Holy Spirit. 
in the course of this day draw us closer to your God and our God, to your Father and our Father. Thank you that the word declares that we've been raised up with you to sit with you where you sit now. In the place of honor and delight at your Father's side. Make that word real for us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not sure if it, it's possible for the next wee while, just for the, the band to come back. Is that possible? Yeah. Pat, Paddy's back now. He was away for a moment. So, In fact, why don't we just stand in the presence of God? And uh, there, there are people here who would just love to pray with you. And um, can I ask those who are uh, going to be praying just to come forward? That would be really good if you can uh, come forward now. And uh, even though we're coming up to, to coffee break, can I, can I just encourage you, if, if you feel that God has been speaking to you in this first session, then just come forward and ask that whatever God's doing would just be sealed by a prayer from these uh, people that are here to to serve you and to, to help you. Um, I, I would encourage you not just to rush for coffee, but if you feel that God is, yeah, he's been speaking to me and he's been showing me there's stuff here that I need just to hold openly in his presence. And just come forward and allow these people to, to pray with you. There's no pressure, but I just know that um, over the years, I'm a very private person, very shy person. But there's been big breakthroughs for me when I've actually got over that and allowed people to actually just pray with me. We're a body, and part of the way that God works is that the different parts of the body bless one another. And maybe you think, well, I was in the secret place. Can I not just do it all there? Well, you can do a lot there, but God also has made us a body. And he likes to bless us through one another. So don't let fear hold you back. But just come and allow these people to, to bless you. So why don't we stand just in the presence of God. And we'll just, um, for the next few minutes, we'll just be in his presence in an atmosphere of worship. And without any other pressure, if you want prayer, then just come forward. So Lord, we thank you. We we continue to honor you as the living God, as the one who is present, as the one who is near to us by your Holy Spirit. And just continue to work, we pray, in this prayer time. And, and even as we go for coffee in a few moments, may we, may we not allow the evil one to snatch away the kingdom seed of your word that you want to be fruitful in our lives today. In Jesus' name. So just come if you want prayer.